Thank you, Megan. This morning, we are at the halfway point in our series on the lives of Elijah and Elisha. We've had three weeks with Elijah as the main character, and now we're going to have three weeks with Elisha as the main character. This is also an exciting week because, um, well, we get to highlight the second animal on our graphic here. So far, we've had the raven, and uh, now we get the bear. And if you know, you know. So it's very exciting for uh, those follically challenged like myself. So last week was the second week of back-to-back mountaintop experiences for Elijah. Uh, Two weeks ago, he was on top of Mount Carmel. He called fire down from heaven to demonstrate once and for all that Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, was the one and true God rather than any false gods or idols that the people had been worshiping. And then last week, immediately following those events where, I mean, he called fire down from heaven. When Queen Jezebel was angry with him after the slaughter of the nearly thousand false prophets, um, he, he ran. He feared for his life and he was discouraged. He was scared. And he ran essentially all the way to Mount Horeb or uh, Mount Sinai, depending on your translation, but the mountain where God had given Moses the Ten Commandments. This was not a happy mountaintop experience for him. This was a scary and sad mountaintop experience for him. He was discouraged. He was afraid for his life. And even after experiencing all that he had experienced, he asked that God would take his life rather than let Queen Jezebel hunt him down and kill him. And Elijah was one of the few people then in the Old Testament to have a face-to-face encounter with God. And when he did, God said, what are you doing here? This is not the place that you are supposed to be. In other words, why aren't you doing the job that I have called you to do? We said that God can still work through us when we are full of doubt. God can still work through us when our despair, our disappointment, and even our uh, depression, are. we feel like they're limiting us, but they do not limit what God can do through us. At the height of Elijah's breakdown, God was still providing for him and planning to use him in great ways. The first of the things that God said, hey, this is how I am planning to use you in the future. He told him that he was to go and appoint his successor. And as soon as Elijah left Sinai, uh, he went and found Elisha. We're told at the end of 1 Kings chapter 19, So Elijah went down and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. The first thing that you need to notice is that Elisha's family was wealthy. To have a team of oxen put you squarely in the upper middle class You could plow fields not by hand. You had oxen that would do it for you. To have 12 oxen or to have 12 teams of oxen meant that you had 24 ox 
oxen that were, I don't know what the plural of ox is, but either way, you had 24 of them that you could use to plow your field, which meant that you had herds and herds and livestock, and you had enough land that it required that many oxen to plow the the ground. Elisha came from a life of wealth and privilege and left it behind to become Elijah's servant. He didn't just literally leave it behind. He figuratively left it behind too. He used his plowing equipment to start a barbecue. And then he served up the animals that he had been working with to all of the people around him and his household to say, listen, this is not my livelihood anymore. Enjoy this. This is the last feast like this I'm throwing for you because I am no longer this wealthy herdsman. I'm no longer this wealthy farmer. Rather, I am the servant of the prophet. But that was 1 Kings chapter 19. The passage that Megan read for us this morning was 2 Kings chapter 2. It's been years, probably close to a decade since Elisha left. He has seen wars with Elijah. He has seen fire fall from heaven with Elisha at least twice. He has seen kings fall. He has seen new kings rise. He has been a faithful servant and a companion to Elijah. But now the story that they have been living together is coming to an end. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we are jumping into 2 Kings chapter 2. God, thank you that sometimes you let us know when a story is coming to an end. Sometimes you either nudge us through your spirit or, or you just use your people to let us know when a time or a season is coming to an end. Lord, when that happens, when we are going through that, may we embrace the change that you are calling us towards. Father, may we be blessed with faithful companions and may we be blessed with a church that prepares the next generation to serve. And it's in Jesus name that we pray these things. Amen. There's something really neat that happens when you know the end of a story. When you know how a story ends already, you can focus on the events surrounding the story instead of trying to figure out where the plane is going to land. You don't need to worry about the ending because the ending is already laid out for you. This is starting to become a very popular um, means of storytelling, whether it's a superhero show or a Star Wars show that is seemingly popping up every week on Disney+. Plus. Like, hey, you know how this story ends. Look how it started. Look at the things that you didn't know that went on in the background that sets up how a character became the hero that they are. Or maybe if you're not a Disney person, you have Better Call Saul, who you knew how that story was going to end, but still there's all the details around it that you didn't know, that you get to pay attention to because you don't have to worry about the ending. Best-selling novels like Time's Arrow or The Night Watch employ this invertive narrative so that readers don't have to worry about how the story is going to end, but what they have to do is pay attention to the details. As a parent, I do this with my kid. Hey, here's how the kids, here's how the story is going to end. You're going to clean your room. You're going to do your homework. You're going to do whatever that task might be. You don't have any say in the outcome of this story. It's going to end this way, but you can absolutely affect the details. You can focus on your attitude. You can determine how quickly it's going to happen because when you don't get to impact the ending of the story, you are free to focus on the things that you can impact. This morning, we are looking at an account that was decided from the very, very beginning of the story. There is no drama. We know right away what is going to happen. Elijah, uh, or, sorry, uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 begins this last story with Elijah in the narrative like this. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. 
Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The author of Kings does not bury the lead here at all. It says from the very beginning, when Elijah was about to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. That's a pretty big punchline, right? Like that is very much the headline. Hey, here's what's about to happen. And it is a big deal. That is the climax of the story. That's how the story ends. And that ending is not going to change. He puts it at the beginning of the story because he doesn't want us to worry about how the story is going to end. He's telling us right from the beginning. Everyone knows that this is the end for Elijah. Elijah tries to give Elisha an out. Hey, um, you can let me do this part on my own. God's calling me elsewhere, but you can stay here. These two had been joined at the hip for at least seven, but possibly up to 15 years. We know because there's a couple passages there in the chapters in between that give us a length of time, but there's also different kings assuming the throne. And so depending on which timeline you're looking at, you can, you know, there's some wiggle room for how long they've been together, but they've been together probably at least a decade at this point. And Elijah says, hey, Elisha, you have an out. I can do this part on my own. And these are the first words of Elisha's that we have recorded from that very first conversation that we just read in first Kings chapter 19, when he promised to follow Elijah, it's been five chapters that Elisha has played Robin to Elijah's Batman. He has been in the background. He has been saying, yes, sir, I'm going to support you. I'm going to support your ministry. And this is the first time that we get to hear him speak as we know that Elijah's time is about done on earth and Elisha's role is about to begin. Verse three says, there we go. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know. Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. Remember, when we were in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah claimed to be the only one left. He's on the mountain. He's he's kind of griping and complaining to God. He's like, I am the only one left. Even though Obadiah had told him that hundreds of prophets had been put in hiding so that Queen Jezebel could not find them. Here we get just a little bit more insight into how many faithful servants of God there were in Israel. Even though the nation was culturally and politically led by people who had abandoned their faith in God, in both of these cities that they go to, there is a company of prophets. Depending on your translation, it might say the school of the prophets or the sons of the prophet. And as they're going to make their rounds to these different cities, all of these prophets, all of these up and coming prophets, they come out to Elisha and say, hey, God has shown us what is about to happen to Elijah. Are you aware of what's about to happen? And Elisha knows. He's like, yeah, guys, I'm, I am aware. This is a hard day for me. Can you quit rubbing it in? Okay, I know what's going to happen. You don't need to keep bringing it up. And each time Elijah says, hey, I'm going to go to a different city. I'm going to go to a different place. He requests that Elisha remain behind. And each time Elisha demonstrates a a tenacious commitment to remain with his father until the end. 
Even these prophets at these sites, they know what's about to happen. They understand. If we are looking in a literal translation of the Hebrew text, their statement to Elisha has kind of a a double entendre to it. It literally says, do you not know that today the Lord is taking your master from over your head? What it was saying is, you know that after today, he is not going to be in charge of you anymore. After today, you will no longer be serving him. But also after today, he is literally going to be whoop, taken from over your head. You will look up and there he will be over your head. He will be taken from you as Elisha would see Elijah taken in the whirlwind. This is kind of a farewell tour of sorts for Elijah. So this is the southernmost part of the kingdom of Israel. You see Judah down there, that, or Jerusalem down there, that is in the kingdom of Judah. So these are kind of the borderlands between the two kingdoms where the prophets are. Notice it's far away from Samaria. They have hidden from Jezebel. By the way, Jezebel is dead at this point. We didn't have time to cover that. She got thrown out of a window and eaten by dogs. Not a happy ending, but she wasn't a happy person. So I'm not too, I'm not too broken up about it. Um, but so they're at the southern tip of the kingdom of Israel, right above Judah. And they're going to these towns and visiting these prophets. And it has been suggested that maybe these companies of prophets or sons of prophets, whatever your translation says, maybe these are schools or societies that have been set up by Elijah during these years between 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings chapter 2. Maybe after God said to him, these are how many prophets I have. These are how many people have never bowed to the Baals that he started to set up these societies because there is one in each town and the numbers seem to match up with what Obadiah had talked about just a few chapters before. We don't know for sure, but in his final days, he goes about saying goodbye to each of these groups of prophets. And as he's going, he gives Elisha the opportunity to leave his side, but Elisha refuses to leave Elijah's side at every turn. Verse six says, then Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan, the Jordan river again here on the map. And when we talk about the Jordan, the region of the Jordan was almost always seen as due east of the river. In other other words, not the land that one of the kings of Israel ruled, but rather something different. The wild, untamed wilderness. Sometimes the Aramites were there. Sometimes the Edomites were there. But it was seen as this wild, untamed part that was kind of part of Israel. But the kings of Israel and Judah had no real control over it. So Elijah says, God has sent me over the Jordan. And Elisha replies, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. 50 men from the company of the prophets went up and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elisha took his cloak, rolled it, and struck the water with it. The waters divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. If this sounds familiar, it should. Remember 10 minutes ago when I said that we know how this story is going to end so that you can focus on other details and that was intentional by the author. The author told us how this story is going to end so that when we get to this part when they're crossing over the Jordan River on dry ground, you think, hey, wait a second. Wasn't there another moment in the history of the people of Israel where crossing bodies of water on dry ground was a pretty big deal? Huh. And was it... And weren't there two different leaders that caused this thing to happen? And the answer is, yeah. If this reminds you of Moses and then Joshua, it's supposed to. That's why the story is told this way. 
Elijah even takes his coat up and rolls it so that instead of it being a coat, it's like a long staff and he's using that to part the waters. It is supposed to remind us of Moses. And now we have these 50 prophets that are standing behind them. Part of me thinks of John chapter 21, where John is following Jesus and Peter. He can see what's happening, but he can't hear what's happening. That's this kind of thing. They're they're hearing the Jordan. They can't hear the conversation happening between these two men, but they can look and they can see what is happening. And they see that these waters part and they see that they cross the river. And this is not a super wide river. This is not the Mississippi. This is something that they could easily see across. And they are watching this happen. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You ask a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Elijah says, Elisha, you have been a faithful servant. You are clearly who God has anointed to be the next prophet, the next messenger of God to the people of Israel. How can I bless you? What is a way that I can bless you before I leave? And he says, I would like a double portion of your spirit. And now to us, we, we think, wait, what? Like, exactly how many times do you expect to call fire down from heaven? Like, how much, what do you mean you want a double portion of Elijah's spirit? What are you trying to accomplish? But he's not asking to be twice the prophet that Elijah was. He is asking to be his heir and his successor. Old Testament readers, when they read this passage, they would think back to Jacob and Esau. Remember how Esau was the firstborn. He was the one that was supposed to be the heir of Isaac, but Jacob swindled him out of his birthright. And that birthright was a double portion of the inheritance. Maybe the prodigal son is more of a familiar example for you. The oldest child is always set to inherit twice as much as the other children to symbolize that the oldest child is the heir. And so in effect, what Elisha is asking Elijah was not, hey, I would like a double portion of your spirit, meaning I want to be two times the guy you were, I want to be twice as used by God, I want to be twice the prophet. What he's saying is, I want to be your heir. I want God to use me the way that God has used you. I want to symbolically be your successor. In effect, Elisha is saying, I want to have the resources that will make it possible for me to serve God the way that you have served God. And Elijah says, I think that that is God's plan. In fact, I'm I'm fairly certain of it. And here's how you're going to know. If you see me leave this earth, then you will know that God is going to bless you that way. And if you don't see me, well, then you won't. And there will be another prophet raised up. Verse 11 says, as they're walking and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah, Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. I understand if you were either compelled to start singing swing low, sweet chariot, or to like run in slow motion with chariots of fire playing in the back of your mind. Cause I've been doing that all week. Do, 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 do. Um, so this is where this moment comes from, right? These songs that you've heard, this is what it is referencing. God comes down or sends messengers down to gather Elijah. He doesn't have to deal with death. He has just taken up to heaven 
And again, this is intentional. God knows what he's doing. The Canaanites, they referred to Baal as the rider of the clouds. Part of the way that they would worship Baal was to say, oh, this is the God who's in charge of the clouds. Remember, he was in charge of rain. And so this idea of the rider on the clouds, no, a horse rider on the clouds, this is a chariot. This was the most advanced military weapon there was at the time. It's like, your God has a Ford Mustang in the clouds. My God has a tank in the clouds, all right? That's what this was. So the chariot comes down. And again, there's all of these others that are there witnessing this on just, just over the other side of the river. And in Elijah's final moments, God is using, once again, Elijah to prove that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, is superior to Baal. He is using Baal's own nickname against him in one last spike of the football for Elijah's ministry. Even on the way out of this world, Elijah is proving to the people that Baal is a false god and that Jehovah is the one true God. So here we have Elisha. He is by himself on the other side of the river, and uh, he's uh, fairly naked because he's just ripped his clothes in two. Verse 13 says, Elijah then picked up Elisha's cloak, I'm sorry, Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. If you remember from the passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon, when Elijah first met Elisha in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, what he did was he put his mantle on him. Elijah took off his coat and put it around Elisha's shoulders to symbolize, hey, you are going to be my heir apparent. In um, first King, I'm sorry, second Kings chapter one, Ahab w- was dead and he had, his son had succeeded as king and there's a new king named Ahaziah and there was a conflict between the king and the military leaders and Elijah And when Elijah was trying to get a message to the king, the way that the king knew that it was coming from Elijah was the military leaders were like, it was this dude with this one like kind of weird coat. And the king was like, oh, of course, that's Elijah. Elijah was known for this one coat that he wore. That's how he was known in Israel. The coat was famous. And so when Elijah is taken up to heaven. Elijah is watching this and you can kind of see like the coat fluttering down from heaven after this chariot and after this whirlwind and this cloak, this coat lands at Elisha's feet and he picks it up. He puts it on because he's just torn his clothes in half as a sign of mourning. And now when he walks across the Jordan, the company of the prophet sees, Hey, this is a different guy in the same coat doing the same kind of miracle This is God's new messenger to Israel. Verse 15 says, The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit is resting, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days, but did not find him. When they returned, 
When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? Elijah was gone and Elisha was to carry on his work. Then immediately after this, there's a, a, another little passage about how Elisha had cured the water around Jericho of something that was making the people sick and causing their crops not to grow. Um, demonstrating to the people, not just to the prophets, that he was God's messenger. And then the chapter ends with this wild account that I am including a, because it's on the graphic, but also as just a little bit of a proof that this is not a made up thing. If you were going to make up a religion, if you were going to fabricate scripture, you would not include this. Only real life can be this messy and this weird. So Elisha has taken over for Elijah and has been the prophet for about three days. And this is what happens. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around. I don't know why everybody's laughing. He turned around, looked, up at, uh, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. The part of me that has spent way too much money on Rogaine and Propecia and who has spent way too much time with teenage boys um, really appreciates this passage. Bears aside, it is easy to get caught up with the spectacular events of the story. It is easy to focus on a chariot of fire and the whirlwind. But the reason that this story starts with when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind is because the author does not want us to only pay attention to the spectacular things that we could never replicate, but the human elements that we can absolutely emulate. Elisha had the opportunity to leave Elijah and he turned those opportunities down every single time. He was faithful he did what he said he was going to do, and God honored him for it. It didn't happen all at once. Like I said, we have five chapters and close to a decade between any recorded words of Elisha's at all. For five chapters, for a huge period of Israel's history, he sat there silently in the wings. He was willing to play second fiddle. And God rewards faithfulness in his time and in his way. There's no doubt in my mind that had Elijah struck out on his own after a few years, that God would have and could have still used him. Maybe he would have been one of the nameless prophets that we see elsewhere in First and Second Kings, or maybe he would have been one of these 50 prophets standing at the edge of the Jordan River watching what happens to Elijah. We, we don't know, but he waited. He waited his turn. He stayed faithful. And then God gave him a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. The reason that the books of first and second Kings are so difficult to read is because the nations of Israel and Judah keep getting worse and worse and worse. King David did not prepare Solomon adequately to be his successor. And so the nation got worse. Solomon did not prepare any of his sons to be successor. And so the nation got worse and worse and worse so much so that there was a civil war and a rift. And now there's two nations and each of those nations continued to get worse and worse and worse because no successor was prepared. 
We see this in churches all the time. We see this in companies all the time. We could go over to the fellowship hall and pass around a microphone and be like, all right, everybody tell me a story of a former church that you've been a part of or a former business that you've been a part of where everything fell apart when the guy at top left. How many churches have you seen that when the one pastor retired or, or left, things didn't go well? How many of you have had jobs that were wonderful and tremendous jobs and then there was a new person in charge and everything happened all at once and things went from good to terrible in just a very short amount of time? First and second Kings are hard books to read because these kings that are supposed to be servants of God fail to prepare successors. Elijah realized on Mount Sinai that a big part of his ministry was not just calling down fire from heaven, was not just being God's messenger, but rather was him preparing others for ministry. Part of serving God is equipping others to serve God. If we don't do this, our faith dies with us. This is one of the reasons why our live stream is run every week by either Megan or Andrew. We have a middle schooler and a high schooler that controls what the world sees of our church. And it's not because we don't have adults that could do it. It's because we need the students in our church to know that the future of our church begins with them and they need to be able to lead and serve. That is a reason that in the nursery and in our um, preschool classroom right now, we have middle schoolers helping because they need to be able to serve the church. Part of serving God is equipping others to serve God. That's why I don't make announcements by myself most weeks, but rather Maya comes up and makes announcements with me. It's not because I'm not capable of making announcements. It's because we want the children in our church to know that part of our job as a church is to equip them to be the church now, but also in the future. Part of serving God is preparing others to serve God. And Elijah got that. Here's why churches struggle with this. We like things our way. We like things the way they were. We like to do things the way that we're comfortable. There are certain styles that we're like. And by preparing somebody else, we are risking the fact that they might have a different style and we might not like it. Guess what? We're going to spend the next few weeks talking about Elisha and his style, or, and his style was different than Elijah's. But just because their styles were different does not mean that God did not use him mightily because he was prepared for the role that God had for him by Elijah. There are two questions that we need to ask ourselves in light of this passage this morning. The first is, am I being faithful? I am, have I been faithful in doing the things that I said I was going to do, even if I have been doing them way longer than I thought I was going to be doing them? We have a God who rewards faithfulness. We see that in Elisha. So we need to ask, God, am I being faithful to who you have called me to be and what you have called me to do? The second question we need to ask is, how am I preparing whoever is coming up behind me? How do I need to equip someone else to lead a small group? Who do I need to equip to volunteer to serve? Who do I need to take out to lunch and say, hey, this is why I serve the way I do. This is why I give the way that I do. How am I equipping the ones coming up behind us so that our faith outlives and outshines us in the future? By looking for who you can prepare or be on the lookout for who you can prepare because part of serving God is preparing others to serve God. And because Elijah got this right, 
his legacy was richer. Because Elijah got this right, Elisha's ministry was stronger. So the questions I want us to ask as we're wrapping up this morning is, am I being faithful? And who can I prepare? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have not called us to serve you alone. But rather you have called us to train up and raise up those who will serve you in the future. Father, I thank you that you are not a God who doesn't pay attention to what's going on, but rather you notice longevity. You notice faithfulness. And you bless and reward that faithfulness in your time, not ours. Father, cause us to be patient. Cause us to be willing to wait on you and your blessing. Father, cause us to be people who are eager to prepare and train up those who are coming next. So that our faith will outlive and outshine us. And most importantly, so that you will be glorified in us, your people. Lord, bless us now as we continue to worship. Bless us as we sing. Bless us as we serve. Bless us as we give. Lord, bless us as we worship you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.